Beat them to fail. I had their backs. I asked them to stretch more than we stretch. You know, PNG, I'd say at its worst, it looks back and understands what worked, and we do it again and make it 5% better. And, you know, I'm all for looking back and understanding why things happen. That's all part of research and part of being a smart leader. But if you're not looking forward, if you're not looking around the corner, if you're not spending a percentage of your time on innovation and new ideas and possible Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I'm excited to have somebody whose books I've been reading for over for many years. <laughs> I could say at least that. 10 years, years ago. <laughs> Not but, decades, uh, many years. When did Grow come out? Jim Stengel, uh, former CMO of PNG uh, podcast host extraordinaire. We're, we're going to talk about all sorts of things. But when did your book Grow come out? It was, gosh, almost 10 years to the day. Oh, really? I remember okay. coming back. Our, my kids and my wife and I were on a holiday before Christmas. We went to warm weather. We were coming back to the Atlanta airport, and I saw an enormous display of the book around Christmas time 10 years ago. That's a special feeling, you know? I bet. It, it was my first book, and seeing it in a store, really done, it, it's a kick. You know that. Well, how many years were you at P&G altogether? 25. Okay. And, you know, there's a lot of CMOs that come and go in the world. Like, you know, it, it's a, it's not, it's not typically a long-term role. No, it's not. For a lot it's of about folks. what? 40 months. I think it's up to 40 months. <laughs> yeah. But I, I am like a real, for being a finance nerd, like I, I love finance nerds. <laughs> I hang I out am... with them all the time. <laughs> well, uh, really as an entrepreneur, I feel like entrepreneurship is like mostly sales stuffed with whatever you do. Okay. And about 12, 13 years ago, I realized, man, if I got a little better at marketing, I wouldn't have to sell so much in person. And and it just be like, you know, didn't, didn't take the time to go back to school and thought like, how am I going to self-educate and just have just really spent an inordinate amount of time doing audiobooks. And I've got to say, I think your name comes up in other people's books more than any CMO I've ever read about. So hopefully that's something. I've been around a while. <laughs> now, and I've, been, and I've been, even when I was at P&G, I, I was actually looking at my notes the other day when I was P&G CMO. And I was sharing in some presentation when I was just named CMO about what I would hope to do with the team and my hopes and dreams and principles for how I work. And one of them was just to be externally focused all the time. You know, we're going to win outside these four walls. We're going to learn from others outside these four walls. And and we had an aspiration back then to, we were kind of on our heels at that time when I came into CMO. And we had an aspiration to be the best brand building company in the world benchmarked against anyone. And it was, and I'm saying this at a time when AdAge had a headline that said, does P&G matter anymore? Our stock price had just dropped about 50%. We weren't seen as the place to be. This was in, you know, the early stage of the dot-com surge and people were leaving to go to those companies. And we just said, listen, let's, what's it take? What will it take to be the best brand building company in the world? And we decided what that, what it would take. And that was our agenda. And, and we had a great run and they're still having a great run. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, Procter & Gamble is such a big international name, but but so are a lot of other Fortune 100 companies, right? And I'm, I'm interested in digging in. I think I, I actually really like to read old marketing books to see mm-hmm. what's still true. Like, like I like reading like Jack Trout books, like yeah, Positioning or Differentiator Die yeah. or stuff like this, right? And, you know, I think he might be one of the guys that really turned me on to like looking at what you guys have done special. He's like, you know, it's not... Procter and Gamble dishwashing soap and Procter and Gamble clothes washing soap and and like the trap of line extension that that kills so many people of diluting diluting what that brand means in the customer mind. You guys are like one of the best examples in the world of like no, we are going to own the customer mind for this one thing where you can say to your spouse, "Hey, pick up pick up some Cascade, pick up some you know pick up whatever it is," and and your spouse doesn't have to guess well which one, you know like. He tells the Scott story of like Scott's used to mean, you know, facial tissue, right? And then all of a sudden yeah. became, you know, so many different paper products, and you couldn't say to your spouse anymore, "Grab some Scotts," and they know what you meant, and it allowed Kleenex to become Kleenex, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of PNG leaders who are leading other organizations now. The company that's a great equity of the company, and I think it comes down to a few things. You are schooled when you go to PNG on on understanding the consumer and the problems and issues in their lives that we can help solve. So it's very, very consumer first. In fact, I was just, I was just interviewing on my podcast, the CMO of Intuit, which was founded by an XPNG person, Scott Cook. And why did he start that business? He realized check balancing and personal accounting was a drag and people hated it and they were frustrated by it. So he started with the consumer and worked backwards. And the company's now, what, $190 billion in market cap, some crazy thing like that. But I think you're schooled in consumer understanding. You were schooled in strategy. And it's a, it's a, it's a company that all, it's strategy first. So, and, and brand building is about strategy. What's your competitive edge? What's your competitive advantage? How do you extend that? How do you, how do you win versus all others? You know, so... Strategy first, and then I think the last part of it is you don't move ahead in that company without building others, developing others. It's a promote from within culture. So when you're coaching, when you're training, when you're developing your talent, when you're spending a high percentage of your time with your people, that just rounds out a great leader. So consumer first, strategy first, people first. It works in any category. Okay. I have a bunch more questions about this, but I want to take a detour for a moment. Can I tell you how great I think your guest list on your podcast is? Like, what a win. You guys have got something awesome going on there. Well, I, I, you know, I, I, I do have a great guest list, and it's a gift to talk to those people every week. I have been in the business a while at P&G, and then I left P&G 12 years ago to start my own thought leadership and consultancy on purpose. And so I've, I've been in the industry. I know a lot of these people. I, I, have, I have a lot of trust with them. So a lot of people know that when they talk to me, I'll go for honesty. I'll go for authenticity. I won't ask them easy questions, but they know we'll talk about the right things. And, uh, and I just find that as, as you do, uh, it's endlessly inspiring to have a podcast guest on every week. And I just love it. Well, I, 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 as a compliment for you of curating your list, like I love that you've got BlackRock and JP Morgan and some of the biggest companies in the world. And then you've got people who... You've got people who, at least I feel like, have figured out how to make a big splash in a hurry, like StockX. Yeah, you know? that's a great and, interview. 
that, like the variation of size and anyways, I, I think that must just, I'm interested if you think, if you agree, but I, I think I must be very rounding out of the kind of experience people get if they go through and just listen to all your shows. Oh yeah. You know, I went the big ones, of course, the PNGs and the JP Morgan chases, as you said, but interesting startups and new companies and younger companies that people can learn from. We ha we have to keep that balance because, you know, I did a book after I did my first book about big companies and startups and what they can learn from each other. And I, I thought there wasn't Is that really a playbook unleashing for the that. innovators. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it was great fun to do great fun to research. So I have a good mix of what I think are interesting entrepreneurs and startups, and I'll always keep that. I mean, I, I, not too long ago, I did the Uni CMO in the pizza oven. Yeah. And he had, he had been at Yeti before that, so he built oh, the really? Yeti brand. And now he has this wildly, it's so fast growing, and it's really, it's, it's the only brand really in that space. And he My just gets it. He gets it. It's about the short term and the long term. He's a really interesting leader. He's a very thoughtful leader. And it, it, was a, it was a great interview. And in fact, I've introduced him to other people because I think he's, he's just so good at what he does. So a guy we've had on the podcast a number of times raves about those pizza ovens. His name's Jay Davis. He owns a marketing firm where they make like, I call them like the funniest infomercials you've ever seen. They're like, they're like a pre-roll on YouTube, but it's like five yeah. minutes long yeah. with multiple calls to action, but they're so funny. You watch the whole yeah, thing. Of course. You know? Of course. It's the brilliance um, of it. And it's a great he, product, right? It always, it always begins and ends with that, right? It's a great product. So uh, let's, well, tell people about your company for a minute as well. Well, I want to go back to something you asked me. I actually wasn't being facetious that it's really important for me to be close to finance people. In fact, I was very close to my CFO at Procter. A big issue with CMOs is they don't talk the language of business. They don't hardwire their activities to what the company is trying to do. So, and I, I coach a lot of people I talk to casually about their relationship with their CFO. And, and my company has invested in a software company that is bridging the link between brand equity activation, brand purpose activation, and financial results. And the company is called Barra. It's growing like crazy. We invested in it because we thought it was such, such an important space. Is this uh, Barra.ai? Yeah. Yep. Interesting. So another great uh, entrepreneur who saw a problem in the industry and who developed a, a, a software platform to address it. And and they're, they have a blue chip client list. They're growing like crazy. And we're learning a lot from, I'm learning a lot from them. They're learning a lot from me. And the chemistry of my team and their team is, is, is just wonderful. You know, this is fascinating to me. I, I actually think this is the same problem that the HR people have. You know, like, think about, like, who are, like, some of the most discounted people in the C-suite, right? And it's the people who can't talk in terms of Excel spreadsheets. Like, your boss loses his job based on the numbers. So if you talk to your boss about employee engagement and you don't do the work to like, as an HR person, take that water to the end of the row of like, and what do we think this will mean financially so he can go talk to the board about it? Like, it's not a shocker that you're not a huge priority for him, even though people are everything. Yeah. If you can't, if you can't take it all the way. And like, I look at marketing and like, so for being, you know, chair, chairman of an investment fund, I'm actually an art school dropout. Originally, I wanted to be a pro snowboarder. And then I thought, well, at least want to draw the the art on on snowboards. And then I thought, actually, I want to do the concept illustration for movies. And then I dropped out to be an entrepreneur. But <laughs> I feel like creativity runs through all that, right? That's the red thread. Well, I feel like there's a lot of my old art school friends who 
got into marketing because art wasn't going to pay the bills. And some of them I feel like really embraced like the point of like this needs to be profitable. And other of them I feel like were just like they're just looking for an excuse to keep doing art and like making money is like a necessary evil in the, you know, like much more concerned about awards than profits, you know, things like this, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and yet a software like this can help those folks who realize, ooh, if if I want to keep doing this at higher and higher levels, I actually, like you said, need to need to speak CFO, right? Yeah. And data data informs creativity, right? And when I said when, when I said the special part about PNG is it's it's all about consumer understanding. Consumer understanding is data. It's curiosity. It's understanding why is why is this going on in households? Why what are the issues that that parents are facing? What are the issues people are facing? So it's all about curiosity. And once you have the once you have the opportunity, state it clearly or the problem. You know, this is in every management textbook, but it doesn't happen that often. Once you state the problem you're trying to solve, then you unleash all sorts of creativity against that. So it's this crazy freedom and creativity within a brief. And you know, the art of great marketing is writing a great brief for your partners and your team to be inspired by and to develop work against. So, so no, I think it's really important. I mean, I'm a big creativity. I, I, have, a, I have a reputation for eliciting good creativity from my teams and agencies over the years. And it's because I took it really seriously. I valued what they brought to the party. I valued unorthodox thinking. And I also also understood my role was to get the brief right and get the goal right and set the culture so that we could do, you know, unexpected work that led to great outcomes, which leads to great brands. A question I have for you, I'm thinking about the end of your, I think it's your latest well, I'm thinking about the end of your Gary Vaynerchuk interview where he's saying, okay, you know, what, what's, you know, what are your punchy things you're going to leave us with? And one of yours was be different. Mm-hmm. And I guess my question for you is <clears throat> why is it so hard for humans to have the guts to be different? Because it's easier to follow something. And, you know, there are a lot of successful companies out there that are fast followers that are not innovators and that's a skill. I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, I think belittle that. I think being a fast follower can lead to some really, really great, great organizations. But that's a choice. Do you want to lead or do you want to follow? And that's different capabilities, right? And I like to be involved with organizations who like to lead. PNG was one of those. But you know that comes. Again, I talked about strategy a few minutes ago. That comes from deep thinking about what you're trying to do. And, and a lot of companies don't start with that thinking. A lot of companies don't even have a framework where they make explicit the kind of brand they're trying to build. So how can you build a brand if you don't have some sort of North Star on what is the purpose of this brand? How is it different? What are its points of difference? What's its tone of voice? What does it take a point of view on? What, what about it is magnetic so you attract people to work on that brand and also to want to buy that brand and buy into that brand. So that's kind of hard thinking and to, to make choices about how you're going to be distinctive and different and then resourcing it and make saying yes and no to things based on that and to invest in it. 
I mean, that's what why P&G is 183 years old. They take that kind of stuff seriously. And most great companies who build great brands, they have different ways of, 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 of making a framework obvious and visible to their organizations, but they all have something that guides, guides their behaviors and their actions. Yeah. What was the, what do you think the peak market cap of P&G was while you were CMO? We got, gosh, we got 250 billion or so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we went, we went from, when I, when I started, we were at 38 billion in revenue and we went up to, about 84 when I left. They're a bit smaller now because they shed some businesses, which I think in the long run is probably a smart idea. But its uh, its market cap is well above 200 billion now. I mean, the stock price has been on fire over the last six to 12 months. But I think we hit about 250 when I was there. When you think about the temptation for so many folks who, you know, they get to be the big cheese for, and especially for such a marketing driven organization. They got 30, $34 billion in revenue, right? There can be such a temptation to just don't rock the boat, you know? When you think about what you did differently than maybe, maybe other folks who get a new CMO role, what do you think that was? My, my CEO said to me as I was leaving the company, he said, you have made this organization more empathetic and more bold and more creative. And, you know... He's probably right, I think, and that was my legacy. I I gave people freedom to fail. I had their backs. I asked them to stretch more than we stretch. You know, P and G, I'd say, at its worst, it looks back and understands what worked, and we do it again and make it five percent better. And you know, I'm all for looking back and understanding why things happen. That's all part of research and part of being a smart leader. But if you're not looking forward, if you're not looking around the corner, if you're not spending a percentage of your time on innovation and new ideas and possible disruptive ideas, to be asking your question, what would obsolete this category? So I, I, I think I gave people the freedom to look around the corner, to try new things, to be purposeful. You know, while I was there, we rethought how we build brands and the frameworks that guide our behaviors. And we put purpose at the top of each one of those frameworks. A lot of our brands had a very functional benefit that was kind of their North Star, and that's not very inspiring, and that doesn't generate a lot of really interesting innovation. So when you put something up at the top of the pyramid or the diamond or whatever visual you're using to build your brand, then it's something that's based in consumer understanding. It's based in an opportunity. It makes sense for your category. It makes sense for the history of your company and your brand but stretches you, but makes you imagine some different possibilities. That's the characteristic, I think, of a great marketing company. And that's what I tried to build into P&G without losing the good stuff. You know, the sense of some discipline, the sense of financial accountability, the sense, the sense of not getting too far away or too far ahead of your team and your customers. So it's, it's always a balance, but, but you need the balance. I don't care where you are. When you think about helping a team, you know, that maybe is doing, doing, you know, doing decent on empathy, but, but could, could use to improve a little bit more on, on boldness and creativity, what are some actions you'd advise one of your clients or advi- advise a leader to maybe do to help strengthen the, the boldness muscles or the creativity muscles? Get some, well, I think 
have a diverse team around you that challenges you, that keeps you on your toes, that thinks differently from you. And you should have that in your internal team. And of course, you should have that in your partners. You know, if, if the agencies you hire, if, if you work with agencies, design agencies, communication agencies, whatever they might be, they should have in their brief to bring you a steady stream of ideas that that are that that make sense for that brand, but that shake and and if you set that kind of culture and set that kind of expectation, by the way, people love working in that environment, and they love bringing those ideas forward because they 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 know well that you're not going to do all of them, but they know you want to listen because you never know where that idea could lead. So I think the diversity in thinking, and I also think that you have to be out in the market. And I know that's been hard over the last two years. We've improvised. We've done the best we can. But when you're out with people and and doing right, visits, field checks, whatever, live-ins, whatever it might be, and just observing, seeing what's important in someone's life, how are they leading their life? How are they interacting in your category? What, what are the unspoken and unsaid needs, desires, hopes, frustrations. I mean, there's endless opportunities to improve people's lives out there. That's never going to get stale, but you have to be out and observing and listening. And that's, that's all part of empathy, getting out of your own shoes. And, uh, and I think that's really, really important. It's really important. And we typically don't do that enough because there's not a short-term payout. It costs money sometimes. You have to make time for it. And we're all busy. But it's so it's so important. It also inspires you when you're out with the people who you are, you know, who are buying your product, buying your brand, and it's an important part of their life at the moment they're using it or thinking about using it. That you know, it just gives you energy. Yeah. What would you have to say? So there's a number of folks in in you know the startup world and the entrepreneurship world who who see a lot of waste in large company marketing and do a little bit of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater of like, Hey, listen, we live in, we live and die on sales, not, not marketing awards and, you know, lead generation, Mm -hmm. you know, direct, direct opportunities that are highly measurable are easy to invest in for, for folks like that. But building a brand for some of them can feel very fuzzy and not trackable and like intellectually they know like they know a brand is great but they also have a struggle going like yeah but how much how much is it worth trying to become well known when we're when we're when we don't have budgets to buy super bowl ads and stuff and how would you advise younger companies who they're open to the idea of brand building but they they have a resistance to like the fluff and the waste that sometimes happens in the name of brand building. Well, well, there shouldn't be fluff and waste, right? But I, my question to them is, do they really understand when they say brand building, do they, do they understand what that means? Probably not, right? And How would and you define they, it? And do they know actions to build the brand are less effective than down the funnel work? So the question is, what data do they have to make that judgment? One reason we've we're working with Barra is they demystify all that and they show that they help you make choices on which brand building activities will have the highest return for your company in building brand value. 
So, so anyway, I would challenge their assumptions. Yeah. Ask them if they have the data. Maybe they should work with a partner who can help them get that data. It doesn't cost a fortune. Well, we should have the CEO of Barra on. I, should I think be, you should. Connect me. I think we you should. should. We should have. We should have them on. His name is Ryan Barker. He he's he's very energetic and very informed in this space. So I think okay. we should do that. Let's see. But that. I mean, that's it. And then the other question I often ask, just for fun. Yeah. When I when I'm talking to a company who maybe doesn't like how their spending is split, and they feel like all the money has gone down toward uh, down the funnel activity, I ask them the brands they admire and why. And then we talk about how those brands go to market. And generally, the brands they admire are ones that do invest in brand and understand their investment in brand and have a brand that people want to be a part of. You know, I, here, I, went, I went to see back right when I was leaving P&G, my CEO was on the board of Dell. And he introduced me to Michael Dell. And we were having a chat. And Michael would not, not at all mind me saying this, but he said to me, we make great products, but our brand is in the way. We don't have the kind of brand that people want to be a part of. And some of our competitors do. So in his mind, what was the biggest challenge, the biggest issue? And this is a pioneer in direct marketing. Yeah. It was the brand. That's an interesting, that's an interesting conversation to hear. How would, how would you define brand? I think it's the collective actions and behaviors of everyone who works on that brand. It's all about what we do. Great organizations who have great intentions and are trying to impact people's lives in the right way build great brands. And when they make some mistakes, they are generally forgiven because their intentions were good. And, and this is the magic in whether it's purpose activation, brand building, whatever you want to call it, if your organization is engaged, if people understand the kind of brand you're trying to build and their role in that and how that impacts their daily work and their incentives and their performance reviews, you have a high probability you'll build a great brand. So that's how I like to think about brands. It's not the conventional definition, you know, about thoughts and feelings associated with an entity. You know, okay, got it. But to me, the more personal one is, it's just all about what we do and how we behave and how we think. That's that's what guides great brands. So I, I I'm interested in what you think of this statement. I, I printed this out and like stuck it to the door of my office for like two or three years. It said, "Your customer's experience is your brand." Mm -hmm. That's good too. Yeah, sure. It's another way of saying what I just said. Maybe a better way. Well, I think I think what you said is is richer, or, or you cover some different aspects that it doesn't. But so so somebody who's saying, okay. I, I, you know, you're right. I do admire brands. You know, I like, I'm happier to tell people I bought an Apple than a Dell, you know, like what are, what are some of the key activities, a CEO founders, you know, who are going like, okay, I think, I think we're convinced. What are those key activities that, that you'd say they need to focus on? Well, I would ask them if they're all aligned across the leadership on the kind of brand they're trying to build. Do they have any sort of framework that is guiding them? And you know, we talked about this a minute ago. There are lots of them. Just Google it. You'll find lots of templates and frameworks. We help people with those at times because the magic is in what you put in the framework. But are they aligned on what they're building? So if their company's name is, I don't know, you know, uh, Pencil, okay, and five years out, two years out, what do they want Pencil to be? What does it mean to people? What is the North Star? Why? 
why are they important in this world? Why should anyone care? And that gets at a lot of the purpose discussions. And then what's your promise? What do you deliver? How will you deliver that purpose? What products and services will you provide? How will you be different? What's the problem you're solving? And by the way, in a lot of young companies in tech, and I've met a lot of them in my book research, and they can't tell you that. They can't tell you how they're distinctive and different and how they're stretching that advantage. Or, or And that's really a problem because a brand, what, you know, at the end of the day, a brand is people generally, more people buy it, more people stay loyal to it, more people advocate for it, and you pay a premium for it. And so if they're not seriously thinking about how they're different, how they offer the world something different, good luck. You're going to be a commodity. I'm like having all these conversations from last week going through my head. I want to get your, I want to get your advice here. So we just spent the week in Mexico. We're, we've got a partner there that looks like we're going to do a deal with this month on 75 acres in the jungle by Tulum, south of Cancun, mm -hmm. and then about 163 acres on this white sand beach island called Holbosch Island, north of Cancun. So yesterday, I was just like securing the guy who I want to lead this this whole subsidiary fund for us. And he's, you know, 20 years developing large international luxury resorts for W and Starwood and Caesars and, you know, job offer at Four Seasons. He's, he's consulting on a Ritz-Carlton right now. And his pitch to me was like, he, he was playing hardball a little bit last night and he was saying like, hey, this is what it would take for me to come on. And one of his big things was cause. He's like, I would need a, you know, he's like, I made a lot of money for a lot of other people for the first half of my life. And the second half of my life, I want to do stuff that matters. And he's like, I would need to know, like, we would need a cause and I would need to know that everybody wants to be in on it. And the the stuff on the White Sand Beach Island, we actually have to, everything has to be these glamping, you know, luxury glamping tent. Mm -hmm. Development needs to be a meter off the ground for the sea turtles to nest underneath and yep. all this stuff. And and he said, like, his thing was, like, I don't want to be low impact. Like, you know, the development world has done a lot of harmful things. Yeah. He's like, yeah. I don't want to be low impact. I don't even want to be no impact. I want to be beneficial impact. Like, could you guys sign on to, we are actually going to make we're actually going to make life better. We're going to make that environment better for having been there instead of only harming it a little. And, you know, I love it. it's this specific island has no development on it. It has no people there, no anything. So it's kind of like a chance to do like an untouched eco resort because you can't get to it except by boat kind of thing. And so as you're talking, I keep thinking, okay, how do we do this? How do we do this? Yeah, but also I, I would ask, I would, I would go back and talk to him about Okay, you want to do a cause. Okay, what's the cause related to? What's it emanate from? How is it going to, <clears throat> excuse me, how is it going to build the brand? And so I, I'd start with, excuse me, <clears throat> I'd start with what kind of brand are you trying to build? We talked about that framework. There it is again. So what's the purpose of this company? What's the name? What's the name? What promise what will you have? What, what, how will you be different? What's your tone of voice? What's your personality? Who are you trying to serve? You know, are you for everyone? Are you for, you know, so that, that yeah, no, this is like a, this is like trying to create a luxury experience that you can't get elsewhere. Um, it's a good start, but I want to get a bit more granular on that. And then, and I want, and so I think once you have that, then the cause will come out of that. Mm. But if the cause is unrelated to that, it gets, it's, it's, it's weird. It's, it will get inauthentic. And so, so that's, those are the questions I'd ask. And by the way, I would look at, you, you're Canadian, or 
So you will know this. You know Cadillac Fairview, you know the real estate company in Toronto? Just a bit. I grew up in Western Canada. Okay. But okay. I know the name. Got it. Well, it's a big, it's a big commercial real estate company, you know, shopping malls, apartment buildings, the whole bit. They have been on a purpose journey. And they asked a similar question. How do we go into communities? And when we do something, how do we make those communities more vibrant? How do we transform the communities for the better? That you'll see this on their site. And and I've gotten to know that company. I work with some of them. It's authentic. It's real. It's changing how they do business. The results are terrific. But I would have your friend take a look at them. Just for instance, I mean, it's a different, it's a different brief. It's a different market. It's a different idea. But it's a company that tried to be different in terms of how they approach things, starting with their purpose. And I think it's been very effective at it in real estate. That's great. I, I definitely will look into them because I, I will say like, it's a struggle for me. Like there's lots of luxury resorts around the world. It's, we're not like inventing a new category. Right. And there, there are plenty of people who like, you know, the four seasons has this amazing glamping resort. I want to say in Burma called the golden triangle. It's like $1,800 a night, sleep in a tent. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so like, I want to take inspiration from stuff like that, but then I want, I want to do something that like when, when, you know, the, the wealthy clients Instagram from our location, nobody is potentially confused that it was at any other resort right. they've ever been to. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it's a, anyways, it, it's, I spent the last number of weeks, like kind of obsessing about this. So, uh, as you should, right. I think, you know, because I think if you don't, have some different way to market. You're again. You're you're going to have trouble charging a price premium and getting people to come and come again and spread the word. So those are real fundamental questions, and you, so I think you're asking the right things. A question for you maybe is thinking about balance. You know your books, your work, your podcast, all sorts of places. I feel like you've you've very well demonstrated that having having a purpose at a company not only makes your employees more excited to work there, but, but like it bleeds through everything. It's a natural magnet for customers, for investors, for employees, all sorts of things. Do you ever have concerns about people losing, like losing track of the financial discipline in the name of a cause? Or do you not see that happen? No. And I think you're, you're getting at a misunderstanding about purpose. Okay. I, and I, I, you know, it's crazy because we've been at this a long time. But a lot of people hear purpose and they think it's about cause marketing or it's about philanthropy or it's about some side hustle you do as a company. And it's not that. It's, it's the business model. It's your business strategy. So when I, I just talked about the real estate company in Toronto, they, they said they want to transform the experience in a community when they come in. Now, what does that do? That enables them to do a more remarkable building. It, it, they have a different approach to their clients in the building. They're very focused on their client's success in the building. That's their purpose. Now, do, will they then somehow do something, you know, philanthropically based on that? Yeah, they might. But purpose is a strategic choice for the company to make mm. your business better because you're serving people better. Are you delighting people better? Are you exciting people? Whatever it might be, but it's it's core to the business. It is the way to superior financial results. And there's a lot of great work coming out. Some of it using Barra data to prove that you'll create a lot more value for your company 
by activating purpose in the right ways for your company, your consumers, your category. I think, I think what you said is so important and you're like, well, at least I can speak for myself. I haven't been thinking about it that way of thinking about it from like, I'm just going to say it back to you and you can correct me, see if I'm understanding this right. But like thinking about purpose as a deeper level than the, I guess what I mm-hmm. heard is like, think about purpose as a deeper level than the tactics. Purpose is the reason your company's here. I mean, look at one company I'm, I admire these days is General Motors enormous, but look at what they're trying to do. Led by Mary Barra, they've a great CMO. Actually, they're trying to save the planet. They're not saying it that way, but they are trying to reduce admissions massively. They're trying to be the most diverse company in the world, the most inclusive company in the world. But it starts with, they want to electrify everything they sell because it's better for this world. Now, is that a, is that a business choice? You bet it is. Is it a business choice that that they think will help lead to greater shareholder value? Yes, that's their purpose, right? And it takes courage to do it, especially in a situation like they're in. But that's not a philanthropic choice. That's not cause marketing. That's the heart of the company. Yeah, if I'm hearing you right, it's like, this is not the wallpaper you put on after you decide the architecture. This is the scaffolding that the architecture is built on top of. Yeah. Is that fair? It's the foundation. It's the, it's the framework. Absolutely. So question for you, because for me, for our family of funds, because we've got different, different strat- mm-hmm. funds doing different strategies. Some are US-based. This one would obviously be Mexico-based, right? For me, the family of funds is our charity we've been doing for the last 12 years, combating child trafficking. You know, unfortunately, my mother-in-law is a victim of that as a 12-year-old. She's fourth generation in her family and broke the cycle. So it didn't happen to my wife. It's incredibly close to home for us. Like that's the, the family of funds. That's what it is. Right. And for me, I've struggled with like, yeah, but is every, does everything we own underneath need to be that? Like our, our luxury real estate portfolio, you know, can that business have its own cause? And does that cause need to be related to the guest or should we potentially have the, you know, rescuing children from exploitation be every portfolio company's cause. Any guidance on that of what, what you'd well, say? Well, are you, are you, you're building a sort of a family of brands to this fund, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess I would... Because I know, feel a little bit like each brand should have its own. Yeah, I do too. I mean, you're sort of a multi-brand company, right? So I think all of your individual brands or entities, I think they should have, they're, they're, they're probably making a different choice on the customer or the consumer that they're serving. They probably have a different North Star for their company that should start with purpose. There may be causes or philanthropies that come out of that. I feel so, like some of it should be location-based as well. It, absolutely. Get people involved. You know, I, I, I've worked with some CEOs who wanted to make their legacy that their company is left with a deep sense of purpose. And it, sometimes it takes them two or three years to get there because they want their people involved. They want it deeply socialized. They don't want this to, they don't, it's not a lay on. It's not coming from above. Everyone feels like they're a part of it. They believe in it and they understand their role. So my intuition would be let your different entities go where they want to go. I mean, maybe guided by a common methodology. I mean, that's the magic of a P&G or Unilever. They have a common methodology. They apply to many, many different brands. And then each one of those companies has a corporate brand that does have a, does have a stated purpose and stated values. 
and and often they have a cause of philanthropy corporately that 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 makes sense for the brands, but is something the corporation decides to do. It sounds like you're sort of more that model. What do yeah. You think? Well, I keep thinking about like this, you know, luxury hospitality on the Mexican Riviera. You know, we've got two properties already in this fund, and we're looking at adding more. And to me, like that audience is very into environmentalism in general. And yeah. like, I'm just thinking of the, like, how can you turn positives into strengths? Like our, our one on the white sand, white sand beach Island, like it's, it's a restricted zone. Our, our development has to be done in very specific ways to preserve the environment. And as you were talking, I was thinking, I wonder if we could get our guests to go participate in like actual conservation activities on the Island. And like, one of the, uh, this guy, Bryant, who I think is our newest partner as of yesterday, he's saying like, if we're first on the island, maybe we can actually lobby the government and say, anybody else who comes in has to meet this standard or above. And like, we could actually like change what happens here. And this doesn't just become another like Vegas, like Cancun, where you, you, you mow down all the jungle, you know, kind of thing. No, I love that. And that's much more natural. It's much more authentic. And, and, you know, people are very quick to see purpose you know, greenwashing. They just are. And you don't want to be there. And you won't do that. That's not, not the kind of person you are. But no, I would I would work with the local team, the local thought leaders, and figure out how your development of that island is better than where it is today. It's funny, because the word greenwashing came up in our conversation sure, yesterday. Of of like, how do we not just do it? Like, one of the things we talked about is like, what if we didn't? So there, there are a few organizations down there that are quite critical of the developers that are mm -hmm. doing poorly. And I thought like, what if we didn't resist those people? What if we invited them, them in? Engage them, if, right. Yeah, what if we like made them part of the team, you know? Yep. And like, well, okay, that's it. You should my do that, guy, by the way, you should do that. Okay, I appreciate, I appreciate your endorsement of this idea because my gut feeling is the biggest way I can help with child trafficking is by having that resort be as profitable as possible so that the the general partner carry that goes up can, sure. can combat trafficking. And that doesn't mean that everything everywhere needs to be trafficking, you know, counter-exploitation, counter-exploitation. Like, let's, let's do something that that guest is going to care about, that that community is going to care about, and, like, have that natural, like, feedback loop themselves. That's and where I would go. I appreciate yeah. your endorsement of it. So. No, no, really. And, and, and you're right. You're, this is very personal to you. You should continue doing it. And the more successful your business is, the more means and resources you will have personally to to put against that. So I think that's great. Another question for for, for me, uh, maybe going a, a different direction here is, I the pod, podcasting has been such a huge influence on me mm -hmm. of getting to spend time with so many people. I'm interested for you because you you're so exceptional at a sport that a lot of people play. You've been highly recognized by the industry for years and years. But my, my sense is, being as curious as you are, that you are consistently new, learning new things by interviewing these people on your show. I'm wondering what, like, it, was there anything unexpected or any great interviews or, or oh anything that stands out that you could share with us? To me, it's, it's well, I, what I try to do in the interviews and in the preparation for the interviews, because I do go in prepared. I want to understand this person and their company and their category very well. So my team and I spend a fair amount of time before the interview. I don't give any guest an outline or any idea of what I'm going to ask. And a couple people really want it one. And so I give them generally where I'm going to go, but I want them to be spontaneous. 
And I keep my 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 wife or my uh, son's wife's mother is, is a friend of mine since you know those two got together. And my sister-in-law, I keep they listen to my podcast a lot. They're not in the business world, but one of them is, but she's not in the marketing area. And they love my podcast. And so I ask them why. And I keep them in mind when I'm interviewing. I'm not assuming my listeners know anything other than, you know, I don't, I don't assume they're an expert or they're, they're a marketing person. If I thought about a P&G brand manager listening to this, you know, I think I would be more assumptive and I'm not assumptive. I want, I want, I want it to be very fundamental and I want the people to tell their human story. You know, they're, they're in these jobs and they're big jobs with responsibility and they're interesting jobs, but I want to hear their story, how they got there, what they do, why they do what they do, who's influenced them, how they make choices in their life. And so as long as it stays on the human side of it, which is endlessly interesting and everyone has a different story, then every interview is is distinctive, it's unusual, and it's mind-opening in some way. You know, I, I interviewed the CMO of Intuit, which is a highly successful financial software, as you know, and she really went to how they, they decide as a company five priorities, just five, and how she keeps that visibly in front of her every day, and she measures the amount of time she spends on those priorities. And I thought, okay, that's a really simple, fundamental thing, but what's the big challenge of CMOs these days? Priorities, because there's stuff coming in every minute. But she said, if I'm going to make an impact in this company and leave it better than it was when I came in, these are the five things we have to make progress on, and I have to spend my energy on those five things. So I got her talking about that, and helpful, interesting, why she does that. So I think it's not being assumptive, thinking about your consumer or your listener, and and then just just letting people tell the human story. I try not to talk a lot on my podcast. I mean, I do, as you're doing, because we get into some riffs. But my job is to pull out what's special about them and what others could learn from them. It's interesting. What, what's another one of your favorite guests? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, th- th- that was a recent guest, Lara, from, in, from Intuit. Golly, uh, Jessica Robertson, we just released this week. She's the chief content officer of a company called Together, which is founded by four women athletes, all gold medalists, all world-renowned. And the whole purpose of that company is to elevate women's sports, tell stories about women's sports, and to and to 4% of, of money goes into women's sports versus men's in terms of advertising and media. And these are incredible women and they are incredible teams. So they want to tell different stories. And, uh, and, it, and she was a wonderful guest and a non-traditional guest, right? It's a company that's under a year old. It's doing really, really well. And, and I got her to talk about her childhood. She grew up in Kentucky and she wanted to go to New York. So we went there. Why did you want to go to New York? And who influenced you as a kid? And we, it turns out we had a very similar background in terms of how we grew up. And so that was, that was wonderful. So I, I recommend that, Jessica, which we just released. Frank Cooper at BlackRock, I've inter- 
interviewed a couple times. We, before the podcast started, we were talking about BlackRock. He's just such a smart, wise, kind, human, thoughtful person with a, such an interesting career, right? Harvard lawyer, went to law school with Barack Obama, then went into, he went to work for Pepsi, and then he went into music, and, then, and now he's in, you know, the largest asset manager in the world. So his whole life story, and, which, and he's, just so, he's just so good with sage advice. So I love that one. Um, Deb Wall at GM, which we talked about already, that, that was super. Shelly House at Ulta, fabulous story, obviously a, a incredibly high growth brand. Greg Lyons at Pepsi, who talked about his wife who passed away and her, her final advice to him. Huh. And what his life has been since then, he's, he's been remarried. And he, and he went there on his own, right? Every guest, you have to let them go where they go. But just very poignant. Sophie Bambouk at Everlane. There's a younger company. She spent many years at Nike. Her father was in the advertising business in Paris. Her family's North African. Yeah, well, you know, just what's it, so these let's human take that stories. Last, another, what, another great what one, it, Sophie. What was an insight for you with the Everlane one? Let's just use that. I think from Sophie... It is the, the influence of Nike on her. Just, we, we talked earlier in this podcast about how do you value a brand. When you spend a good amount of time at Nike, that's not even a question. It is all brand. And, and everyone gets it. They understand. Like, <laughs> I do like the Phil Knight quote who says, we're a large marketing organization that <laughs> sells shoes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, and I think... She was influenced by her father. This gets into mentorship. He was in advertising and he loved it. And he talked about it at home and they sort of played games and, and they, he kind of quizzed them on different campaigns. So she is in the field because she was inspired by her father and she just really loves the, the whole area of marketing. It's, and she's, uh, and she's, you know, she's great with her team. That that is one theme. Just I, again, this is so fundamental. It's it's even al almost stupid to talk about it. But I often get asked, "What's the theme?" I've done about 170 episodes, and so not as many as you. But I often get asked, "What are the themes?" And what have I learned from? And just the consistent theme is the amount of time and energy and focus these people have on their teams. In building the right team, just making sure they have the right chemistry, that they're working really well together, that the relationships are strong, they're unified on their goals, and and that takes time. You know, I reflect back when I was at PNG, the amount of time I spent building my team, energizing my team, aligning my team, listening to my team, and it's it's that's leadership. And so maybe that doesn't sound like a fancy marketing activity, but that is a really, really big theme in all, in all of these interviews. And the best CMOs in the world spend a lot of time on, on their teams. That's interesting. Um, it's funny what a sacrifice, like how easy that stuff is to say. And then for all of us to look at our Google calendar for tomorrow and go like, oh, where was I going to fit in that yeah. hour or two? Okay, maybe as we as we wind up here, we'll go for some more tactical questions. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of our listeners are either founder CEOs or investment fund managers who are investing in founders or new projects. Um, if somebody 
if somebody gets on board and says, yes, the cause, they're doing the work to get aligned, but now like it doesn't do a lot of good to have a cause if nobody finds out you have the cause, you know, like if you're trying to get the word out. When you look tactically at folks who maybe have a more limited budget, right? And you look at like Gary Vaynerchuk, who's like, hey, let's figure out what the newest social media is where it's not expensive yet and let's go get onto that. Mm -hmm. Or you look at like, you know, Joe Paluzzi at the Content Marketing Institute says like, eh, I don't know if you want to build all your architecture on rented land. Like you should yeah. be constantly driving them back to your email list, yeah. to your website. And, you know, you look at the Richard Branson's of like his strategy for free ink of like, yeah. how yeah. is the chairman? Can I get on the front page of the newspaper without paying for it? You know, what, what are what are just like looking at where, you know, 2022 in a, a couple of weeks here, what kind of ideas would you have for those those founders who... If they do, they have, they have nailed purpose, uh, but now they need to get the word out. What kind of ideas would you have? Well, again, this is a real fundamental one. And I think this would have been as relevant 20 years ago as it is now. Are you, are you, are you sharing stories and content that people find really interesting? I mean, again, it's so simple, but what, what are you, you know, the, the, one of the most effective, I mean, I was just in a meeting earlier today with the whole, the people at Cannes who've done this massive study with work about, What's the most effective channel these days? It's online video, right? And behind that sort of is whatever your packaging is, if it's a product. And behind that is social media. So what's online video? It's stories that are told that, that are viral. So you have to get your purpose, right? You have to know why you're different. And then you have to be creative and telling, Branson's just creative and telling stories. If you're, and if you have creative people around you and that's the brief, you know, you'll be surprised what comes out. So, so I think it gets as simple as that. Telling really, really great stories, it'll find its channels. And, uh, and, I, and I do think owning the relationship with people versus renting it is, is an important thought, is a very important thought. And so first-party data, understanding your customers, sort of owning the relationship vertically, you know, that's only going to get more and more important with what's going on with lack of trust in social media and other things that will be going on in the regulatory world. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, listen, this has been great. Where are the best places people want to listen to the podcast or or hire you guys to come help them with their purpose or catch you on social? What, where are the best places? Wherever you listen to podcasts, you should find it, the CMO podcast. And, uh, and thanks for listening in advance. Spending time with someone is the most precious thing we do, right? So everyone who listens to my podcast, I am deeply grateful. And Jim at jimstangle.com. You'll see what we're about, what we do. And if we could be helpful, obviously happy to do that. That's great. Maybe, maybe as a closer, what's a question you don't get asked enough? Or what's a, what's a soapbox, soapbox issue Ooh. for you that didn't come up? I think what we don't talk enough about is... Well, if, you, if we stay in the marketing space here in the CMO space for a minute, is the relationships that senior marketing people have in the C-suite. Now, Spencer Stewart will talk about that because they see it firsthand. But it's really important when you get to that level that you are credible, you have strong relations, what you're doing is linked to the company. I go there on my podcast and I've just interviewed a couple R&D heads because I wanted to talk about the R&D marketing relationship. But I, I think you... Many CMOs are not comfortable doing that. They're actually not trained to do that. They get so busy, they don't take the time to train themselves. Yeah. So I think that whole area of 
how do you behave? How do you spend your time? What are your, what are your relationships like when you get to the top of the company? We should talk about more because if they don't do that, they, they will not succeed. They just won't. And we talk, you know, we talk a lot about the CEO relationship, but it's beyond that. It's with the CFO, it's with HR, it's with it's with the technical side of the business, whatever you might call that R and D, whatever it might be, engineering. But it's really, really important that you understand what drives them, you understand their vision for the business, you understand how they see success, you understand what turns them on in their organization. Doing those interviews when you're new in a role with the other seven or eight or nine people that are in your leadership team, you, you will know your agenda after those interviews. We should talk about that more. Yeah, I think that's a great place to end it. Thanks yes. again for doing this. This has been fun. This has yeah, been fun. I appreciate you making the time. Let's meet sometime in the, okay. in the real world. Deal. Okay. Out in Salt Lake. I'll ski. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. All right, Jess.